We're adopting our families of origins' values and their beliefs and their ways of operating, whether they're good, bad, or otherwise. We develop through our entire childhood and upbringing until we become independent adults. And then whether we're super conscious of this or not, we're looking back, questioning all of them. And this can be a really difficult process because some people never do that and they stay pretty enmeshed with their family and repeat those cycles codependently. And some of us stretch really far and we question everything. When we are doing this differentiation correctly, when we're doing it consciously, is we can look back and we can really differentiate that it's not actually who we are, it's what we're doing. For this season's last guest episode, we are delving into a topic of the subconscious that couldn't be more relevant. We often find ourselves lost with the question, who am I really? What is me and what are instead values, beliefs, expectations conditioned onto me by family, culture and my environment at large? And more importantly, how can we break free from these conditioned patterns and compensation strategies that no longer serve us? Thank you for being here and help me grow. If you find the conversations helpful to make us a unique Christmas present, giving five stars by clicking the three dots on Spotify and helping spread the word with whom you think can benefit from it. Today, I have the honor of sitting here with a licensed clinical psychotherapist, a master coach, and a clinical hypnotherapist joining us directly from Seattle. Her therapeutic approach offers what, in my personal opinion, is mostly lacking in all therapeutic settings today. The holistic view of the person, what she calls the biopsycho-relational spiritual perspective of individuals. So please join me in welcoming Casey Stevens to the podcast. Thanks for being here, Casey. You have no idea how grateful I am that you've reached out to me. And I know I can safely tell it was resonance at first glance. Likewise. Love the work that you're doing and this work you're putting out. So glad to be connected. I have so many topics I want to cover today. So I will start from exactly your therapeutic approach. You are a trained psychotherapist, like clinical training, and you felt it was lacking something exactly like I do. But I'm wondering, what is the line between where the clinical traditional therapy can go? And at what point do we need to apply holistic, spiritual approaches to get to holistic and sustainable healing? Mm, good question. Therapy, like anything, is so individuated. And so it's hard to really say. I do think that the kind of linear process-based therapies that sometimes can be really quantifiable, of course, there's so much you know validity to those and they serve so many people. And I think it's such an individuated approach that we actually just need to know ourselves personally and know if it's reaching the depths for us, if that kind of therapeutic, we can start perhaps, you know, in that realm and learn. I always think the first step to any healing is consciousness. So to learn um, what we don't know, right, to make ourselves self-aware and conscious about that is the most important thing that we can do to initiate the process. And then once our get to know ourselves in a deeper way, then coming to, you know, realize maybe I need a little bit more out of my therapeutic approach. So Western kind of psychotherapy modalities are really wonderful for giving us that baseline, giving us a foundation and a structure even is maybe a good language for it. It's a nice foundation and structure that's grounded in its approach. 
But I find that the people I work with tend to be a little bit more expanded in their consciousness. They want to know more about themselves. They think about the world and their own physical, spiritual life in a bigger way. And they want to explore more of that and not just get stuck in these, you know, more limited paradigms. It's people who already have some curiosity, whether they're conscious of it or not. If you they heard the work that I do, or they went to my website, they wouldn't think, oh, well, you know, I just like some basic therapy here, right? And let's do some CBT or DBT. You're not going to get that with me. It's going to be different. And so I think that, you know, there's an energy consciousness to a website, to a podcast, to listening to, you know, the language and words that I might use versus other people that may speak about other modalities or other psychotherapy practices that are more resonant with them. You know, it's all valid, but it's really what is going to serve you best at the particular process of your evolution. Mm -hmm. So there is one thing that you mentioned that definitely was the core result and outcome of all my research on intuition and uh, decision making, which is the core of everything is self-awareness. I want to ask you, why do you think it's so important to make what actually is in our subconscious conscious so that we can act on it? And is it something that you mostly can access through these alternative approaches of therapy rather than, you know, verbal approaches. Mm -hmm. I think what's limited about the verbal approaches is that we're not going deep enough, right? So we're just re-imprinting the narrative and the story and the trauma without expanding beyond that to understand perhaps what's the root of it, but also what's what can be transformed there. And so I think oftentimes we can get in this cycle in Western psychology where we're actually just re-traumatizing patients on some level because we're just talking about the same um, story, the same narrative, the same trauma when we're re-imprinting it and giving that fuel or giving that power versus what I want to do is start with like, okay, well, what's what are we aware of? How do we take on as much awareness as possible? And then how do we dive in deep, right, to understand what the root of all of that is and then how do we truly transform it? so that we're no longer traumatized by it, right? So that that isn't activated in our nervous system. So I believe the, approaching it from these kind of more holistic modalities and what I've seen in my work and what I've experienced personally, what I've seen with so many clients is that when we take them into that deeper place, when we peel back the layers of conditioning, of trauma, of compensatory strategies, of all of those things that become unconscious to us because they are fueled from some subconscious place that have been formed throughout our lifetime, when we can peel all that back and then we can approach problem areas in our life, troubles, traumas, whatever those things are that um, are patterns that are still showing up, then we can approach it with more clarity, number one, but we can also remove any of the um, barriers that may not allow us to fully experience the healing that we're seeking. And so I think traditional, not that it doesn't serve a lot of people in many ways, but sometimes it doesn't go deep enough, right, to really transform um, what that is at a, at a core level so that we don't have to live or deal with it anymore. And it doesn't mean that we can erase what happened, but it means that our relationship and the meaning that we've made around that, the power that we've given to those traumas is no longer having a power over us. We're at peace. We can be with the complexity of all of it and not be triggered by it anymore. And so, I mean, hypnotherapy is a tr tremendous way to do it, but I think there's lots of energy medicine ways to access the subconscious, right? Um, and hypnotherapy is just one of them that helps palpate something deeper in somebody's um, trauma experience. Yeah, I want to go into uh, hypnotherapy in a moment because there was some development since the last time we spoke. 
Oh, okay, good. Yeah, but I want to ask you, first of all, how can we break free from this conditioning, from these patterns, from this uh, defensive mechanism that we develop, coming mostly from a place of vulnerability as a compensation? And I want to give a, a concrete example that I know can relate with your story and surely can relate with my story as well. We used to be, you know, the typical, I want to rescue everybody. Where does it come from, this need and this desire? Is it because in the past we could not rescue somebody? Like I have it, I think, with my father and I found it again in my romantic partners. Or is it because we want to put the focus on other people so that we don't have to deal with ourselves? So how is it? Where does it come from? And how can we break free from it? Well, developmentally, yeah. I mean, kind of this rescuing in the drama triangle process that you're referring to. Um, and, you know, I tend also energetically to attract a lot of rescuers and have conversations with them because that's the core wound that I had as well, right? Again, it's a compensatory strategy that we develop early on because we've tried a lot of things, right? And that's just where we've landed on the triangle that we found, okay, well, here's where I can be most successful. So what happens is we adapt to situations developmentally, again, in childhood. Um, we adapt as a trauma response to situations where um, we don't know how to handle it because we don't have the consciousness, right? We're dependent children and we're just figuring ourselves out. And, and we're also dependent on you know, our parents who are usually flawed in their own ways. And so we learn, and it can be through witnessing. Like I think a lot of my own um, conditioning in that realm was actually through witnessing. My parents are both very generous, overgiving people. They are probably both rescuers in their own families, right? So there's this real generosity that I witnessed that it's kind of like, well, this is the right way to do things. It's better to be this way. This is what a good person would do. So there is a lot of that conditioning, right, that I got. So natural tendencies that we can have as our core essence, our core personality that we come in with can guide us and lead us to say, oh, well, you might have a propensity to do this. And then life shows up and then we are kind of conditioned to respond in that way, which is adaptive at the time as children, but becomes maladaptive over time. So certainly there's been in my own life included attracting partners where then I am the rescuer with them as well. And so until we get conscious about what am I doing and why am I actually less comfortable having the attention on me and all of those things that you're talking about? It's really kind of getting, again, that conscious awareness of what's even happening in the first place so we can see ourselves more objectively and that it's not actually who we are. It's what we're doing and how it might not be serving us and it's probably not serving our relationships and it's probably not allowing us to even attract the right relationships in our life because we're operating on some function that's feeding or sourcing us in a way that may actually not be giving us what we truly want, but we think it's what we want, right? Because that's how we've learned to operate. And so I think, you know, that rescuer can be really hardwired until we step back and say, well, even if I was doing this from a good place, right, because that can be sometimes the narrative that can go along with the rescuer. It's like, well, we think that we're just being so helpful, but it's not actually helpful because we're not allowing others to have the dignity of their own process. And so what I learned through my own healing and my own overcoming of the rescuer saver archetype in myself, what I learned is that I actually wasn't in service to anybody. And I certainly wasn't in service to myself. And so there's a way to 
maintain that generosity of spirit where you really truly come from a good place and you want to help. This is how I've transformed and become, you know, do this as my work now where I'm not over functioning for people, but I'm empowering them to see their own light and to see their own wholeness and their own power. And so if it's done in that way, then we can actually be quite instrumental in helping to heal and, and helping to activate people's own healer within. But if we're not doing it from that place, if we're not really connecting people with their own power, then what we're doing is we're trying to rescue them. And there is some incentive that we're getting from that. And maybe again, it's that, okay, well, the attention's not on me. Maybe it's that it makes me feel powerful to feel superior to somebody. It's that it makes me feel like, well, I can have your love. If you're okay, then I'm okay. Then I'll feel like I have love or I'll feel like I have connection. Or there's so many ways that we each operate that are all within that archetype of the rescuer. And so what I've found in my own journey, not that I can't slip back into it, even to this day with my own family of origin, it's still possible where I just want to, you know, function and do things for people. And it's like, I just see it and so easy and let me go do that. So we're always vulnerable to it. But what I notice the path to transformation for me so that I could live in this zone of really holding space, holding a container to help people heal is to do it in a way that I show them the truth of their own being. I think sometimes we don't know what we're doing, whether we are connecting people with their own purpose, their own inner personality, with their own soul, or whether we're trying to have power over them. Yeah. Sometimes it eludes rationality. So how can we differentiate? What is one question that we can ask ourselves to understand in which situation are we falling into? Number one, I would ask, who are you really doing this for? What is the benefit that you are getting from doing this? If I'm helping you, what is the benefit that I'm getting from it? So kind of recycling that and asking, who am I really doing this for? If I'm doing it for myself in any way, then it's not the right reason, right? If I'm showing up and trying to help and I'm doing it ultimately for myself, it's not for the right reason. Another really good indicator is oftentimes people who are rescuers they'll notice that they're really coming from a place of lack. So there's some expectation or transaction that's happening that isn't just truly generous. It's not truly beneficent. And we'll notice that because, so if I help you and you don't respond the way that I anticipate you're going to respond, and that could be with a thank you, that could be with you giving me love, that could be with you spending the rest of the day with me or whatever it ends up being. If you don't respond the way that I expect you to respond, then I'm going to feel in lack. I'm going to kind of be a little ticked off or I'm going to be resentful. And then you know that you're actually in the drama triangle rescuer paradigm. So anytime you notice that you're in lack when you're being generous and people usually who are generous will be so generous to the point that they're depleted and then they're really resentful that other people aren't reciprocating in some way. And if that's happening, if you can ask yourself, who am I really doing this for? Well, I'm doing it for me if I'm expecting something and that hasn't been a negotiation or an agreement that we've verbally arrived at, but I'm just superimposing my will onto you, expecting something in return. Well, then I'm trying to rescue you and I'm doing it selfishly for my own purposes. And you'll see when people get really burnt out. I think women tend to get into this mode 
maybe more easily than men do. Although of course we can all have it, but just that a lot of that even conditioning around the mother wound or the generosity of just like how we can show up in society and culturally, like what the norms are around that as women, it's like, we can give, 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 but we're getting depleted, depleted, depleted. And if that's happening, then we're giving something that we actually don't feel good about, or we're giving it for the wrong reason. So check the intention behind it. Yes. Check whether you have the potential to give without taking it from yourself. Right. So check if you're operating from a place of lack or, or maybe fear and you're doing it for that reason and not to rise above what you already are. Right. And check how the other person reacts as well and how yourself react to the response of the other person. If you have expectations, it's a sure sign that you are giving from a place of lack. It's, it's a sure sign that the generosity that you're giving is actually transactional. It's noticing where you overfunction. Are you overfunctioning, meaning the energy exchange that you're investing is greater than that than the person in your life is giving back? So if you're overfunctioning and they're underfunctioning, which is a common, you know, power dynamic that happens in human behavior. That's why I also want to work with people who are a little bit more elevated in their consciousness because I wanted to, them to understand and see and feel, be able to consciously know that it's an even energy exchange. If I'm showing up, I'm giving 100% and I want people that show up and meet me in the same way. In my personal relationships, that's what I want. In my professional relationships, that's what I want. That's what feels really healthy and clean and anything less than that, right? If I were working with a client and I were working harder than them or dragging them along or trying to convince them or they weren't putting in equal effort, maybe they were canceling all the time or they were showing up late or they would demonstrate on a subconscious level that they had a low investment in, in truly changing. Well, those aren't the people that I want to work with. If I'm showing up and meeting you fully, I want you to show up and meet me fully as well. I think sometimes what happens in personal relationships, especially like people who are really close to our, maybe people who we have a relationship with, a romantic one, where we're directly involved with their development as well. What is really hard to do is setting boundaries. This is how much I can help and the rest or everything really, it's still on you. But leaving it there is quite difficult. And I know you have been able to do it in your personal experience. So what was what you will suggest that is what was needed in your case? Well, I really needed to look at myself, right? And explore the times that I have done that um, in my own personal relationships. I've done it with my family. I've certainly done it in my own romantic relationship, relationships, right? I mean, that, that pattern has repeated itself until I've really gotten kind of clear is you really have to see what you're doing. You have to understand that dynamic. When we're over-functioning, even for a partner, we are not allowing them to have the dignity of their own process. So if I come in and say I could exert my will over a partner to get them to heal or to do this thing, I mean, even take out the garbage. If I'm saying, hey, take out the garbage, take out the garbage, take out the garbage. I'm not really giving them the opportunity to step into their own power and initiate their own change or their own growth where if I was successful at it and exerting that will, then, you know, there's a codependency at best. And if I wasn't successful at it, well, then I'm tormented because they're not doing what I want them to do. And they're resenting me because now I'm doing all this work to get them to be what I need them to be for me. 
and they're actually failing right at that, which makes them feel really bad. It makes me really pissed. It makes them really resentful of me, you know, all of that whole dynamic. And so it's coming to really understand the loop that I have to really understand where is this coming from? What is it that I really need? Why am I operating this way? And how is it not of service to me even to do this? And it certainly isn't of service to this, this other person. And because if, if any of that dynamic is operating in our relationship, well, then they're not in their full power or I'm not in my full power. Right. And, and that's not a good thing either, because, you know, I don't know, you know, what most people want in relationships, but I know I want equanimity, right? I really want us both to be fully powerful people. And so it took me a long time until I found that kind of strength and boundary in myself. And boundaries are really with ourself, right? I mean, I have to set the boundary that, hey, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm not going to nag about that, or I'm not going to push them, or I'm not going to overfunction, or I'm not going to try to exert my will because, you know, maybe that's not what they want, but it may not be what's best for them. That's what I mean by the dignity of your own process. Everyone deserves to go through that and to be able to discern what's true and right for them. And if we're forcing and not flowing, if we're forcing our will on anything, well, then that's just control. It's not real freedom. It's not real faith. Um, it's not real love even. So it took me a long time to find that balance and to really do the self-work inside myself to understand that dynamic and how that can be triggered. Even with my current partner, right? I noticed you know, I'd done all this healing, like, and I help people heal. But at, at the initiation of that relationship, I had those tendencies that would crop up again. And, you know, we've certainly like worked through that, meaning I've worked through it, because I would still try to do the same thing, even though I know better, right? I talk about I help people with it, all of those things. Um, and, you know, luckily, my, you know, beautiful, beloved partner, he is healed enough, right? That he can just kind of roll with that and hold his ground and still operate from his own power. So it even can still like, if it's a strong tendency that we have, it's just second nature. The subconscious just drives it right up and, and forces us to kind of go through that process again, even if we've healed it or whatever, because we can't just heal in isolation. I think that especially relationally, I don't know what your experience has been, but when we're in partnership, I think that last leg of the race of our healing really happens in somebody who is healthy and whole that we can grow with. They don't have to be perfect. Neither one of us has to be, but can we grow and evolve together? I really feel you, I think, because even though I know I keep falling back into this pattern every now and then that I find myself exercising control over the other person. And what I try to remind myself is if something is really important to me, then I should explain it and, you know, verbalize it with the other person. But especially like instead of demanding it or pretending it, I should be able to invite it. Right. And that's a big difference than mm -hmm. how, how it comes to the other person because it doesn't pressure them down, but it can help them rise as well. And it's also recognizing that what, what we value or even what we think we value in these ways that we exert control, right? Yeah, that it still crops up. And I think entering into a relationship like that, it brings up all kinds of vulnerabilities. And then all of our controls want to go up to protect us from being vulnerable. And so what you're saying, like really even recognizing are these controls that I think I need or these things that I think are even important to me? Why are they important? So is that something that you will ask yourself? If you see a pattern repeating that is surely conditioning, like for me, it was definitely from my Italian culture. Okay. I grew up with the man being financially in charge. So when I go on a date and the man doesn't offer, 
for me, it's strange. Yes. But then in the first partnership that I had with a German guy, you know, it's not the custom in Germany. At some point we hit a conflict because it was like, I'm not really okay because I didn't grow up with the same, for me, that's not a value. And why is it important for you? And I couldn't really explain it. Mm -hmm. So is it like that when we are not able to explain it, then it's probably not really our value or what would you say? I don't know that I would say that. I think what we are doing as humans is as these subconscious sponges, we're adopting our families of origins, values, and their beliefs and their ways of operating, whether they're good, bad, or otherwise. And so then we, we develop through our entire childhood and upbringing until we become independent adults. And then the process that usually happens at some point to most people is this process of differentiation where we separate enough, where we you know, start to develop our own sense of self, where we get to really explore what our own beliefs are. So what we're doing when we differentiate is we're looking back whether we're super conscious of this or not, we're looking back at our family of origin and our parents specifically, whoever raised us and their values, and we're questioning all of them. And this can be a really difficult process because some people never do that and they stay pretty enmeshed with their family of origin and the values and they just repeat those cycles very codependently. And some of us, you know, stretch really far and we question everything. And so when we are doing this differentiation correctly when we're doing it consciously is we can look back and we can really differentiate each and every little thing that we learned and that we came to believe and we came to identify with even as either valuable or not valuable. And we're sorting and organizing that right into these different places. And so I would say, I mean, to share a similar story, I grew up in a very similar family system to yours, right? Um, I wouldn't call it patriarchal at all, but it was just this culture of my dad took care of everything and he was just very you know, generous and he provided for my mom and my mom was a stay-at-home mom and you know, she worked, but not really in a meaningful financial way. And I was used to that. I was used to really seeing, you know, my dad open doors and pay the bill and you know, like do these things that were very traditional with masculine and feminine dynamics. To answer your question, I hope I'm doing a good job. It could be that you look back at that and say, oh, I don't really like that. I don't know where it comes from or why it matters to me so much. And so maybe it doesn't matter to me. I would really ask yourself, like run it through your own filter and say, did I really like that? And why did I like it? What did that provide? The way that that provided something for you when you were growing up, did it feel good or did it feel bad? Did it feel limiting or did it feel you wanted something else? When I run that through my own filter, I still really value that. I love that my dad did that. I love that even still to this day, if we go to a restaurant, he's standing behind and making sure everybody's gone out first. He's just a very protective provider role. And it's no coincidence that my partner is that way. And I love that about my partner. I hadn't had a lot of experiences, you know, when I was single where I would run into this, but I've heard about a lot of it from clients and I don't think I would have liked it myself, right? Which is not me projecting my values onto you, but me just really saying, I really love that my dad did this. I really love that my dad provided that model for my family. And it's certainly the way that I want to be treated. And it's so I don't think it's good or bad because you don't know where it comes from. I would just run it through your truth center and really ask yourself, did you like the way that you were raised or do you prefer something that might be different? Yeah. In the end, it's a conscious choice. This is something that also a coaching client of mine asked me. After the first session, he was like, 
but does it really serve me to know all this stuff? Maybe I don't want to know. And what if I change the core being of who I am once I know all of this that was stuck in the subconscious? And I was like, I mean, it could be that you change, but in the end, you choose what you want to develop into and what you want to just, okay, well, now I know it's a subconscious pattern and maybe I'm okay with that as well. So I don't want to, you know, dig deeper into that. In the end, it's a choice. Yeah, agreed. In the end, it is absolutely a choice. If you have limited awareness and then you expand that awareness to be this big, that's wonderful because now I have all the choices that are possible inside that new expanded awareness. Brilliant, right? And, you know, I had a period of this even myself, right? If I look back, you know, not that I've had a tremendous amount of, you know, romantic, but I think I overcorrected. I don't need anybody who does, you know, and I, I attracted somebody into my life that I dated briefly that really was the opposite of all of that. And I recognized then. And so sometimes that's how we learn. I was like, yeah, I really don't like this. Like, this is not what resonates with me. And so we pick and choose, right? I didn't pick and choose everything that my parents believe and their values. I have, you know, differentiated a ton from a lot of those, but some of them that they demonstrated are really beautiful and carried those with me. So I've picked and choose, and this is what differentiation is, right? We all pick and choose, and hopefully in a super conscious way, what it is that resonates. And that for me, just as you know, a silly example, but because you brought it up, it's like that actually is something that I quite like. My father is an absolute gentleman. I feel so fortunate to have had him as you know, the masculine in our family. And I really like that he operated in that way. And so I've chosen to seek that out in my own life. Yeah, for me, it's also, I actually experienced both. So I grew up with this fat father figure and then I saw it falling down completely. So my father then was not able to support anybody and I overcompensated that. So now in a relationship, I will say I bring a lot of masculine energy, but probably as a compensation of that, then I like that my man can be and is able to be because... If you haven't been growing up with that, you don't see it as your values. I think it's quite deeply grounded as well, being a gentleman or not. Yes. I also decided for myself, I like it as long as my partner also respects me 100%. Beautiful. So, I mean, and that's just it because we're all individuals. And so there's no right and wrong. There's no good and bad. It's just what's true for you. And I want to get as clear and conscious of what's true for me because there's no two people that are alike when you really boil all of that down because we're all going to come with our own peculiarities around all of that. And the reasons, the bottom line is like when you run it through again, your truth center, it is, it's a feeling, it's a knowing of what feels right for you. Yeah. So I will conclude with the last sentence because I know you have a meeting after this. Then we will have to do a second session where we go deeper on other topics that I had on the agenda. I know. I know. It wasn't long enough. So the last time we spoke, I told you I'm a bit afraid of going through several approaches of hypnosis because I'm afraid I'm not able to enter the subconscious because I feel like in my past experiences as well, my need for control. So my conscious control is so strong that doesn't let, you know, the subconscious run free. Mm -hmm. So what would you say about that? Well, I mean, I think, again, it's a compensatory strategy and you see it a lot of times. You think about all these things that we can identify with as personality traits. Whatever happened 
that made you feel like you needed to hold on to control? One of the ways that I would imagine, especially with you, that you overcompensated for that was with intelligence, right? So you have this really strong mind and you can see this belief that will come with really intelligent people that have a really strong analytical mind or really intelligence. They'll overdevelop that skill as a means of feeling like they're in control. And so it doesn't mean that that's not there, right? That we can't still access those parts. But I would say that not that you aren't, wouldn't be intelligent anyway, but there's a compensatory strategy that came online for you that might've been performative or might've caused you to be more driven. It's even a way that we can dissociate from our heart and our feeling and our experiential world, right? By being up in the mind, because we're not feeling up here, we're thinking. Right. And I can identify with that as well. Right. I have a really strong thinking mind as well. And so I would say it's still possible. And you know what they say about meditating? The people who say they don't want to do it are the ones that need it the most. Right. And eventually you can benefit so beautifully from those experiences and going in and doing this subconscious healing work um, is no different, right? Like you would probably get tremendous value. Even if you have guards up, I think what happens, right, when we have strong analytical minds and also if there's been an injury around safety at any point can be the reason that you have a lot of controls up. It's like you always want to be assessing consciously. It's like, well, let me be hyper alert, right? Let me be hyper vigilant in a way. I'm definitely like that. <laughs> yeah. And so what will happen is if, if the first time you came in to do a session in hypnotherapy or any kind of subconscious work, you would probably have more barriers up where you're still thinking, you know, you might be thinking, is this real or I don't know, or, you know, you're like aware of the entire environment because your eyes are closed. And so you're tuning in to everything with all of your sensory awareness and making sure that you're safe and making sure that you're not losing control. But if you can at least surrender to the process, so much benefit can be gained by especially if you're working with the same person, right? If you go back and you work with somebody and then you develop a, a higher degree of safety and usually after the first time, you know, we'll say, to, you know, how was that? Was And just really get them to understand and see that whatever they had anticipated or feared or stayed hyper vigilant about wasn't really anything to fear. And this is why you have to be discerning when you pick somebody, you know, you want to pick somebody that you really can feel safe with. But I would say do it and don't just do it once, like show up many times because it's going to take a while for somebody who has that kind of conditioning like you do and like I have to, to surrender, but to acclimate to the environment, to the person, to the whole process, right? So it's probably going to take you a little longer, but you will get there, right? I've seen like brilliant things happen. And even on very first sessions with people when they're, they're like, I don't, I've never done this. I'm really, I don't think I can do it. Man, they're in deep and they're like journeying through their subconscious. Maybe so for me, I, I did my second ever hypnosis this weekend and the first time it was in a private setting and I just I was just very relaxed the first time that I did it didn't really pass out you know but this time it was a group hypnosis and I didn't yeah think I came a long way in my personal development and my openness towards it but I was still like yeah probably I'm such a control freak that I will not be able to mm. let it happened the first time point and I was still thinking that when I was like laying down my eyes closed and I was like, yeah okay well I'm trying but probably will not happen and then at some point I noticed that I woke up again I was gone for probably seconds I don't know I don't even remember what happened but it definitely happened and a second time so it was in a thematic frame so there was a topic we were working on boundaries and I didn't really have a situation. So my conscious mind mm -hmm. thought, okay, well, probably I'm, I'm going to think about, you know, my father, because that's what I think my boundaries were first crossed when I was a kid or a teenager. 
And then I was consciously thinking about that because subconsciously nothing came up. And suddenly my mind was steering somewhere else. And that's where I stayed. And it was something that I had suppressed for years. Consciously, I knew the outcome of it, but I, I understood something there. I understood that, wow. uh, for example, the reason why I smile even sometimes when I'm, I'm not feeling like smiling, like when I'm angry, when I'm, when I'm hurt, yeah. as a defense mechanism, that's coming from a place where I had to not be vulnerable, to not show myself vulnerable in school. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really valuable as an insight to, to see that. So I was positively surprised by the powers of uh, hypnosis as well. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, and keep at it, right? Because you will get deeper and you'll feel safer. And I know what that's like too. Even when I've done, you know, group hypnosis, you can get distracted easily by everyone's little annoy, you know, I mean, all these ways that we're just staying alert to protect ourselves. But protective part is over-functioning. It's trying to rescue us from something, but it's not really rescuing us or it's not really saving or protecting us from anything. It's preventing us at this point from having a deeper experience in our lives. So we have to really recognize that the adaptive becomes maladaptive and we have to see what the maladaptive strategies that we have are and then we can change them. Yeah, I think maybe in my case, it even helped that it was a group session and not an individual session because I didn't feel like this. I didn't feel the pressure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. And I can totally relate to that too. It's like sometimes feeling like you're lost, which actually makes a lot of sense, by the way, with the visibility piece that we talked about, that we can sometimes avoid that being like with the spotlight on us, where I kind of want to be invisible. And so being in a bigger crowd, it's not the norm, but it's like the way you can feel like you can just melt in and maybe get away with not having the attention on you is probably why you felt safer that way. Aren't we fascinating as, you know, the human psyche is so fascinating and just diving in and understanding what is unique to each one of us and what is the healing remedy and what strategies we've all put up that, you know, aren't serving us. It's just trying to get to that juicy center. Yeah. Okay. So looking forward to the second session. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Casey, for your time, for your beautiful energy. And I will link your information to the description of the episode and uh, we talk very soon. Likewise. Yeah. I would love to chat again and, and hear how your hypnosis journey is going to and your work and all of it. So good to you. This is why I love making this podcast, because we get to talk about such relevant topics that I feel are the big questions behind numerous intra and interpersonal conflicts. My subconscious bill for this episode is to solve the conditioned versus authentic dilemma. Paint a vision of who you want to be as a person. Then look at your conditioned values and beliefs and filter what resonates with you at the core by asking yourself, where do they come from? How does experiencing them make me feel? And who would I be if they weren't there? Then choose consciously to live by your unique version of it. Thanks for your support until now. It means a lot. For the finale of the first season of The Subconscious Code, tune in again at the end of the month. I have been preparing a small surprise for you. Are you ready to crack the next subconscious code? See you soon.